Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, January 11th, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim talks about the history of the Voyage of the Little Mermaid attraction at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Let's get started by bringing in the man who asks if British websites use biscuits to improve your browsing experience. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Oh, okay. Biscuits, cookies. Okay. I like that. I like especially post-holiday. We're, we're running out of treats out here at the house, so we don't have any biscuits. We don't have any cookies. Anything but if we are talking about cookies, it's, it's worth noting the cookie, from an internet point of view, was invented by a Lou Montuli back in 1994, back when he was working for Netscape. And it's like, cookies still exist? Does Netscape still exist? I, does Netscape I'm, I'm, still exist? I'm going to look this up now. Okay. Uh, apparently it's owned by AOL. All right. Oh, well. So the answer is maybe? The answer is no. <laughs> yeah. That's what you're going to say. <laughs> there we go. All right. We'll, we'll put it in that Bigfoot Loch Ness Monster category. Okay. <laughs> there have been sightings. <laughs> All right, Jim. Let's do a uh, quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Mep Matthews, Anthony P., and Brian K., and longtime subscribers, Tiffany B1969, Kid for YU, and Sue C. Hello, Sue. Jim, these are the folks who are now responsible for generating enough laughter to power Monstropolis while the Laugh For Comedy Club is closed. I am told it involves old episodes of Wings, a dozen jumper cables from Sears, and an entire dentist office supply of nitrous oxide. True story. Well, let's just step away from the jumper cables. That's a little concerning. You gotta wonder, like, what is Monstropolis doing during this uh, during this pandemic with no one in the in the building? Uh, okay, <laughs> these are the things that keep me up at night, Jim. <laughs> okay, <laughs> now it'll keep me up. Thanks, Len. All right, let's move on to the news, folks. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Uh, Jim, recently, in fact, today, Rock and Roller Coaster mm -hmm. has come back online at Disney's Hollywood Studios after being down for five days. My guess is mm -hmm. this is somehow related to either plexiglass installation or something COVID-related. Have you heard anything on this, Jim? Yeah. I mean, we are entering that strange time of year where we've seen the last of the holiday crowds step away. So it's like all of the stuff that... It's like, okay, we need to address that. Yeah. Rock and roller coaster, especially in a park like Hollywood Studios where you have so few attractions. It's like, look, we need to take care of this today, yeah. but we need this thing back up in less than a week's time. So very, very quick turnaround. But you can only do so much over five days, Len. But yeah, it does involve a good amount of plexi. Ah, that makes sense. And also, uh, speaking of Hollywood Studios, our friend BioReconstruct sent us mm -hmm. both a note saying that there's something going on over at Fantasmic at the studios and that we shouldn't be surprised to see some limited version of the show come back. Is that? Well, again, you know, especially when we're trying to keep locals coming back and that sort of thing. The challenge of course, with Fantasmic, especially at the studios is just filling that giant stadium space. It's not a question of like at Disneyland where it's just like, okay, you know, people come and stand around the rivers of America. Yeah. Here you've got 10,000 seats. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see even how a limited edition of that show does and also with social distancing. Right. So if 10,000 seats and they're doing three seats between, three or four seats between groups, what's, what's the maximum capacity there? Like 
3,000? Oh, 3,000, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. I'm so. thinking it also might might help if they have a nighttime spectacular at the studios to pull people away from something that they were going to do at Harmonious. Because if Harmonious is the only nighttime entertainment thing and people can't get in to see it because of park capacity limits, not that I think that there'll be park capacity limits in place for that. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. if they're at 35 or 40% for a... Uh, for Epcot, that's like thirty-five or forty thousand people, which is basically a regular day at Epcot. Like Epcot, basically is is mm. is uncapped right now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But having something for people to go to, if they decide to say to limit the number of people who go to Epcot at night, no, you're not wrong. An alternative, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Also, Jim, we got a bunch of listener questions last week around uh, a couple of things. One is mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of listeners wrote in to say that Disney's recent blog post last week titled 21 Ways to Kick Off 2021 with Magic at the Walt Disney World Resort did not include in those 21 items either Guardians of the Galaxy or the Tron Light Cycle Run. We mentioned the Tron may be doing soft opening come December of this Mm -hmm. year. And Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind, they still need to shoot that footage that's used in the pre-show and in the attraction itself. The thinking is that normal travel patterns really aren't going to return till the latter part of uh, 2021, early 2022. And it's like, why open a huge, big draw attraction when people can't get there? I mean, it just, that folks at the studios remain incredibly frustrated by the fact that they have this killer, basically brand new attraction with Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. And they just cannot promote it the way they want. The feeling is, you know, you're only new for so long. Yeah. And it's a wasted opportunity that any other year, if there weren't a pandemic going on, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway would have been front and center oh, yeah. with the promotional. Yeah, campaign. it really missed the. Uh, it really missed its opportunity to to be the focus of mm-hmm. a big PR media push. Yep. Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing about that is we it ran for what two weeks with FastPass before it shut down. So we really mm-hmm. don't know. I mean, from a modeling perspective, we don't really know what the what the effect of FastPass is on that ride. I feel bad for you and and the team at the unofficial guide because at this point with the data you have, yeah. it's just best guessed estimate, isn't yeah. it? Really? Well, or? so we've we've got enough data over the last uh, last couple of months, but basically the stuff that we had mm. from five years ago is you know or three years ago, not really relevant now. So mm-hmm. hopefully, when things come back, yep. yep. Also, Jim. Uh, so one one other thing on that uh, on that blog post for Disney, they did say that uh, in the blog post they did mention that it's uh, early twenty twenty one, so we don't know what's going to happen later in the year. Jim, we also had a uh, a few listeners write in about the segment where we discussed gal- the Galaxy's Edge timeline. So here's one from Todd. Todd says, in the novel Thrawn Alliance by Timothy Zahn, Anakin Skywalker and Thrawn go back to Black Spire Outpost on Batuu to search for Padme Amidala, and later Darth Vader and Thrawn return to investigate another disturbance. If Disney wants... They could go all the way back to Clone Wars era characters to walk around Galaxy's Edge at different times of the day. John Favreau seems to be pulling characters like Thrawn from the novel universe. Also, Joe wrote in and said, in the Rebel series, the idea of time travel was introduced with the world between worlds, which allowed Ezra to interact with characters and events from the past. Introducing this idea of time travel to Galaxy's Edge would help make it, quote, timeless. Haha, very funny, Joe. As characters and experiences from different timelines could be present with the explanation that they simply have been pulled from their timeline for a brief moment. Let me say, after after a certain point when we start discussing the novels, all I hear is yeah. Charlie Brown teacher voice. 
(laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yes. Right? Yes. (laughs) Right now at Lucasfilm, there are literally two competing efforts going on in regard to the future of Star Mm -hmm. Wars. They have just officially launched the High Republic project, which is... Legalized marijuana in the Star Wars galaxy? Almost, almost. (laughs) It it goes basically 200 years back in the storyline. We're not in the Luke Skywalker era. We're not in the the Mandalorian era. We're in a period where the Jedi are at the absolute height of their powers and the Republic is, you know... But again, it's it's this strictly publishing-based enterprise. I think in the 10 series that were announced from Lucasfilm during the Disney Investor Day, there was one property tied to High Republic. On the other hand, you have the John Favreau, Dave Filoni group. They're the folks who did The Mandalorian. They are the ones who are championing the spinoff series, mm-hmm. the Rangers of the Republic, the Ahsoka series, the uh, Book of Boba Fett. And they're the ones that are exciting the people at Disney corporate. Disney believes strongly in what Lucasfilm is doing with High Republic, that there's a possibility there that they're launching something that they could build on in the future but the smart money is on the mandalorian and what favreau and filoni are up to and this is what the theme park group is pivoting to it's like we have a hit series we have other series being launched by these same guys this is the smart bet if we want people to get excited about galaxy's edge if we want that place body to body and people in the bazaar buying merch and crowding into the tavern and all that we need to Pivot away from the Skywalker saga because, frankly, the very last film didn't do all that well. It did half the business that the studio had expected. The merch sales were incredibly disappointing to the company. Mm -hmm. So the rise of Skywalker, at least as far as Imagineering is concerned, is let's all turn and look at the setting sun. On the other hand, the Mandalorian, that's a smart bet. These are characters that excite people. So many Star Wars fans are so into the canon and so into the stories. And they're the ones who were really kind of horrified when Disney bought Lucasfilm and effectively snipped off years and years of storylines because that wasn't the story that Disney was looking to tell. And the folks who were just recovering from that moment were in that same sort of situation now where people like, yeah, remember about the elaborate canon that was set up for Galaxy's Edge? Snip! We're going to hit the reset button. And that's because Mando and Grogu are characters people actually want to see. Yeah. You know, is anyone at this point, oh my God, Kylo Ren, hang on. I, I need to line up to get my picture taken with that guy. Yeah, no. It's not happening. That is one of the reasons, uh, things like The Mandalorian are mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why Disney wanted to go with uh, Galaxy's Edge that was dated beyond the original, the original set of movies, right? So they could... And it, and it was remember when we when they launched it, we were like, well, okay, this is a this is a huge decision for them because yep. if you look at what Universal did with both Harry Potter lands, it's set in the past mm-hmm. and they're not making any more books. Mm-hmm. And at the time when they did Galaxy's Edge, we're like, ah, this is a huge gamble because you know you've got basically some of the world's most popular characters, and we're essentially mm-hmm. saying they're never going to be part of this particular setting. No, that's it exactly. And and with Harry Potter, you were taking people to places they wanted to go. You could go to Hogsmeade yeah. Village and you could go to the Three Broomsticks. You could go to Diagon Alley and wander down Nocturne Alley or, or go to Gringotts. Mm-hmm. You, know, they, you know, that was a thing. Universal bet on specific settings, whereas Kathleen Kennedy's quote, 
exactly when they presented the original plan to her, which, remember, was Tatooine. Right. That you were going to go be able to go to the, the cantina, you were going to be able to go to where the Millennium Falcon was, was parked in A New Hope. And it's like, look, the future of Star Wars is in new stories, not in old stories that 40-year-old guys revere. And so that was the notion of with Black Spire Outpost was they wanted a loose construct that would allow them to bring characters in that they hadn't even developed yet. So that's what's kind of laughable about to watch the people on the web who are talking about, no, 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 they've established a timeline already for Black Spire Outpost. And it's like, no, if you go all the way back, the phrase that kept being used over and over again was loose construct that would allow new characters to be brought in and with rise of skywalker not nearly doing the business that they'd expected i guarantee you that uh, the rise of the resistance will stay pretty much exactly as it is right now but people should be ready for the rest of the land to have different characters coming in and and just this week i had somebody talking with me about the millennium falcon smugglers run and to the effect of we have an amazing queue we have an amazing ride system we have a lousy ride film we need to address that the story's not great and yeah That's going to get addressed sooner rather than later. But again, that sooner (laughs) as in this is the Walt Disney Company still recovering from a pandemic. So soon in in this time frame is three to five years. It's going to drive people like Todd, our listener, uh, and Joe crazy, though, that uh, that Disney's Disney's, uh, sort of not really following a specific timeline or canon so i empathize with you guys for uh for and that. no totally totally yeah. in fact you know that that trust me todd i read the same book <laughs> you know, I, read, I read thrawn alliance so i would understand black spire outpost well enough when it opened so yes it, there's a certain amount of frustration but it's like in the end to circle back to exactly what george lucas said you know back when they're shooting no hope you understand this is a kid's film right <laughs> Just got to keep that open childlike heart and, and embrace change. Okay. All right, fair enough. Uh, Todd had a second question. It was, uh, do you think we've seen the end of parking lot trams at the parks? I've been in the parks and don't see people having issues with walking into the parks. Have you? Mm. No, but, you know, by the same token, people who are, uh, let's say, have uh, respiratory problems in walking long distances mm. probably aren't going to a park in the pandemic either. So my sense is we've not seen the end of the parking lot trams. Simply because mm-hmm. as more people go back to the parks and they have to park farther away, the idea of their first uh, experience on property being a you know three quarters of a mile hike to mm-hmm. the monorail is probably not the thing that the Disney company wants to give. So my sense is we will mm-hmm. see parking lot trams. No, definitely. But it just it's also important to note that given that the entering and exiting a tram is a high-touch experience and the idea of each time you bring a tram in, you have to take it out of service to clean right. it was so labor-intensive. It's like, all right, for now, this is what we're doing. Yeah, they probably don't have enough trams and then operators to keep you – because know, it, it would take a while to clean a tram. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. All right, here's a question from, uh, from Tony. What Disney park has the longest distance between the turnstile and the castles? So here we're talking about Magic Kingdom, Disneyland, Disneyland Paris, Hong Kong Disneyland, Tokyo Disneyland, and Shanghai Disneyland. I haven't been to all the parks, but after watching a video tour of Shanghai, I'd have to guess that that would be the winner here. All right. So I used Google Maps to measure this. Mm-hmm. And for reference, uh, I went from approximately the turnstile to, uh, to approximately the very front of the castle, give or take. So there's a few that are sort of like all together. The Magic Kingdom I measured at 1,000 feet, and I'm pretty sort of comfortable with that, give or take. 
Hong Kong Disneyland is about 1,020 feet, but I, you know, 20 feet here or there is to me a tie. Shanghai mm-hmm. Disneyland, about 1,030 feet. So I, I would lump all of them sort of together. Disneyland is 1,150 feet. So I didn't know that the castle was farther in Disneyland from the entrance than it is in, in Magic Kingdom. In that situation, that set of Imagineers, the ones who were designing the Magic Kingdom, had 15 years worth of research from Disneyland. True. And Californians complaining about, oh, I have to walk. So it's yeah. like, oh, creep it in, creep it in. <laughs> it's 10% closer. And then the two that are the farthest away, and I measured these at about 1,200 feet, again, give or take, mm-hmm. Disneyland Paris and Tokyo Disneyland. And Tokyo Disneyland was the yeah. most surprising to me. That park, if you think about it, between World Bazaar, how much of Tokyo Disneyland is built to absorb giant crowds. So, you know, the mm. fact that that's the farthest is, and I have to admit, I'm somewhat surprised to hear that about Disneyland Paris, though, because you know, whenever you talk with Imagineers about that part, they're, you know, oh, the intimate experience and things like the hallways on either side of Main Street. Yeah, or to the arcades. Make it that, yeah, the arcades are fabulous. The arcades, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but designed to make it easier and faster to walk through that park. Yep. But the entrance to that park Technically, it's the Disneyland Hotel, isn't it? Or? Yeah, that's the thing. So I, I measured it just after the the hotel because mm-hmm. you go around either side, right? So you go sort of go under a wing. You're not going to go through the front of the hotel to get there. Right? You go around the side. So yeah, if you go to the front of the hotel, it'd be even longer. Good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super interesting. Okay. Uh, yeah. Also, we got a note from Eric who had got a note from Disney about resort transportation for an upcoming trip. And the note said this. Complimentary transportation across Walt Disney World Resort is available in limited capacity to allow for physical distancing. Find out more at this link. And then there was a transportation tip included in this notice, and it said, Disney Resort hotel guests receive complimentary parking at the Walt Disney World theme parks. Consider parking at Epcot, Hollywood Studios, or the Animal Kingdom for another convenient way to access the parks, especially during park opening hours. And Eric's question was, why would they, in a, an email that's promoting resort transportation, which again is a huge on-site resort benefit, mm. why would they be telling me to drive my car? This is one of those once in a blue moon situations, because mm. face it, the number of people you can put on a bus now with social distancing coupled with, I got to wonder, what's the schedule for, you've just brought a group of people over, do you then wipe down your bus before you collect the next group of people? You know, from, from an operations point of view, at least in this window of time, right. is it more effective to just suggest to guests, look, rather than waiting, Disney has an enormous fleet of, of buses, but... In this era, it would have to operate so differently than, you know, at its most effective. So the whole notion of, you know, you could actually just take your car over. And walk to the entrance. And it's free. Yeah, We don't need to be involved at all. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So. That's what I think it is, too. I think it's a way to take some pressure off of uh, the bus system. Also, it might be that... um, with, uh, with physical distancing in the, uh, in the bus system, Disney may be seeing some impacts to customer satisfaction surveys around transportation. And so as you know, you know, people waiting longer for buses and whatnot or not liking what they see you in the buses in terms of spacing or crowding or whatever, and then saying, hey, you know what? If you don't like it, you can drive yourself. But the mantra over and over again, it's like, this is just for now. You know, you know, come the spring, the vaccine, at least up in New Hampshire, won't be readily available to the public till May. That, you know, they're, they're first respondering and then focusing on folks 65 and older. Mm-hmm. But general public still isn't till May. And then it's a question of is it the two dose versus the, the one dose? 
So you talk with, with, with folks at Disney, it's like, we just have to get through the spring. And then in summer, things will start to return. And then here come the fall. And, yeah. you know, we'll finally start to ramp up. Yeah, I've heard, uh, I've heard things from uh, like three weeks to a month behind schedule in terms of getting mm-hmm. the, uh, the yeah. vaccine out. But uh, hopefully it doesn't fall, uh, fall back more than that. Yeah. All right, fair enough. All right, all right folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim and I talk about the history of Voyage of the Little Mermaid. Disney's Hollywood Studios. We'll be right back. We're recording this because we have an anniversary of sorts coming up, right? Of sorts. 29 years ago today, The Voyage of the Little Mermaid opened at Disney MGM. This was a show that was only intended during 18 months, wound up running till March of last year, 28 years. Wow. May returned in some form following the release of the live-action version of Little Mermaid, which paused back in March, but is expected to resume production later this year in Pinewood Studios in, in London. But we've seen a pretty severe lockdown in the UK, so I can't tell you an exact date there. But the story of this attraction really, Len, is, is the story of the early, early days of, of the studio theme park. Back when the Imagineers first began working, Mm -hmm. the idea then was they had their entertainment pavilion. They were going to build it at Epcot, and they were looking to turn this into a a full-blown third gate. Uh, They started in January of 85. They immediately came to the conclusion that there wasn't enough, at least when it came to the Disney IP and film library, to build a studio theme park. And, And that was largely because all of the best films, all of the hits had already been turned into attractions for the Magic Kingdom and Disneyland, uh, Magic Kingdom Walt Disney World, Disneyland Park in Anaheim, and Tokyo Disneyland in Japan. So they began striking strategic deals with other studios. Uh, For example, they cut a deal with 20th Century to get access to the Alien character, which, you know, again, became a a big part of the, uh, the great movie ride. Biggest deal came in July of 85 when Disney announced that they licensed the right to use the MGM uh, UA Film Library, the MGM name, and even Leo the Lion. And they were going to use that to build a working production facility as well as a separate gated attraction, which was then known as Disney MGM Studio Tour. Here's the thing, though, Len. They only licensed the rights to 200 films. And even then, Disney learned the hard way that the stuff that they thought they got the rights to, uh, for example, the James Bond films, weren't actually included. The early, early iteration of uh, Disney MGM Studio Tour featured, you know, that was the stunt show. There was the comedy stunt show. It was going to be all slapstick, and they were going to have an, an action show that, that would have been built around James Bond. Anyway, seven weeks after Disney cuts the seal, Ted Turner buys the entire MGM film library. Then that's, he got 2,200 titles for 1.5 billion. And Ted Turner really put the screws to Disney. Oh, you licensed the rights to the Wizard of Oz for your, your theme park, right? Great. You can only have two minutes. And, you know, just working the timing on what two minutes of Wizard of Oz would have been. That's why, for example, the tornado scene got cut and got turned into that tribute to Fantasia with Mickey. Oh, really? Is that it? Yep. Yep. Back in the day, if you were on the tram tour, you could, when you were in the Mickey scene, look down and see that the Yellow Brick Road had already started. That was the original start of that scene, that you were blown by the tornado to Munchkinland. And when they sat and worked their stopwatches and realized that they needed to lose 30 seconds, that's when the tornado got dropped and that became Mickey, you know, conjuring up the storm from Fantasia. Anyway, 
Park opens May of 1989. Remember from day one at that park land, they were all talking about there's not enough here to do. It's a half a day park. And so Disney needs more stuff to fill the park. So August of 89, Walt Disney Company announces that it's acquiring the Henson Associates for $150 million. And I know that a lot of Disney fans focus on the fact that all of the attractions that we lost, the Great Muppet Movie Ride or Gonzo's Pandemonium you know, Pizza Parlor and the like. But from Michael Eisner's point of view, the big get by buying Henson Associates was that they got Jim Henson's creativity, all of his abilities when it came to movies and television and, of course, theme parks. But they had an exclusive agreement for all of his, his efforts for 15 years. So from 1990 to 2005, Jim Henson was going to be under an exclusive contract mm-hmm. to Disney. But anyway, three months after Disney buys Henson, Little Mermaid opens in theaters. And the weird thing of it is, as early as 1988, in fact, Mark Eads, the gentleman who did most of the early development of Star Tours, yep. he was, he tells the story about, you know, he's literally an Imagineering. And it's like, hey, you know, and the, you got to remember, this is when the, the animators have been thrown off of the Disney lot. And they're in an industrial park in, in Glendale, which is literally across the street from Imagineering. And, and one day, Mark's boss comes in and says, hey... They're making this Little Mermaid movie. Can you go over and see if there's anything we could do for the theme parks? And so Mark walks out of his office, goes across the street, spends the afternoon with Ron Clements and John Musker, watches the footage, and comes back and goes, well, you know, we could maybe do something for the motorboat cruise at Disneyland. <laughs> you know, we could cut out some plywood. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, look, that's Ursula. You know, the frightening piece of plywood. They didn't do this with The Little Mermaid, but three years later, they did a Disney afternoon live event at Disneyland. It was only three months long. And they, instead of you know, a motorboat cruise to The Little Mermaid, it was motorboat cruise to Gummy Glen, as in built around the adventures of the Gummy Bear show that Disney did. God, those were the days. November of 1998, Oliver and Company comes out. Was it really that late? 1998? Uh, 1988, excuse I was going to say, okay, all right. Doesn't do the business that Disney was hoped. More to the point, the merch really doesn't sell. So Mark's bosses at Imagineering sort of turn and go, well, let, let's hold off on the mermaid thing to see if it actually makes any money. So the whole motorboat cruise thing gets put on ice. Uh, and again, November of 89, Mermaid comes out, rave reviews, makes big ticket sales, merch sales just straight through the roof. People love Ariel, want to see more of this character. So now the problem is that This is literally Michael Eisner's first princess, the first hit character other than Roger Rabbit that's been introduced in his tenure. So suddenly you can't do a ride where it's plywood cutouts of The Little Mermaid. This is important. This is Eisner's baby. So now the Imagineers go in the exact opposite direction. Now it's got to be the most elaborate attraction that Imagineering has built in years. You can go online right now and take a look at the this version of The Little Mermaid when it was going to be sort of a Peter Pan flight. Oh, okay. But they're still working on Euro Disneyland, and it's like, this is going to be the most beautiful Disney theme park ever. It's truly important that this is a success. So Eisner makes the command decision that when The Little Mermaid ride debuts, it debuts at Paris first. It'll open two years after the park, which, again, that's April of 1992, so we're talking 94. 90, 94. And then a year later, it'll debut at Disneyland as part of that theme park's 40th anniversary celebration. 
And what's weird is that in this iteration of The Little Mermaid ride, it was actually going to be in Mickey's Toontown, just down the street from a, a recreation of the Hundred Acre Woods from Winnie the Pooh. But at the same time, they have a hit property and they, that they want to be capitalizing on. Jim Henson uh, is really excited. One of the things that he's most excited about, about getting to play in Disney's play box mm-hmm. is the notion of, look at the characters I have access to now. I've got uh, characters that just scream to the effect of, ooh, what you could do with puppets. To the effect, I mean, there's the no-brainer ones like Pinocchio. Movies like uh, Dumbo. It's like, oh, I can't wait to work with these characters. And Eisner's like, well, tell you what, let's get started on that idea right now. And we've got this movie, The Little Mermaid. How would you feel about seeing what you could do with that as a TV show? So March of 1990, Jim Henson's team makes this set of puppets for a show that's called Little Mermaid's Island. You can actually go right now on YouTube, Len, and the two episodes that were shot were kind of two stabs at doing a pilot for this thing. There's the show called Tell the Truth, and there's also Sebastian's Birthday. But you can watch the complete episodes. And first of all, the Henson, I I want to start here, Jim didn't write or direct or produce the show. Henson's team, all they did were the puppets for the show. And it was shot in L.A. at Occidental Studios, which, by the way, was one of the very first studios in all of Hollywood. This is actually where Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford shot their movies oh, wow. you know, back in, in the early teens and 20s. But the thinking here was, okay, so we shoot the first two ones in L.A. with local talent. Mm-hmm. And this was a really high-profile project at Disney at the time, Len. They actually brought back... The voice talent from the actual film. I mean, Buddy Hackett came back to voice Scuttle. Really? Yep. Sam Wright came back to voice Sebastian. Patty Edwards came in and did both Flotsam and Jetsam. But once the company signs off on this thing, we then move production of Little Mermaid's Island to Disney MGM. We shoot the whole first season there. So it's a twofer. We, we get a brand new show for the Disney Channel that helps extend the Little Mermaid's brand. But at the same time, guess who are taking the backstage tour? Yeah, you got an attraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they're looking down, you know, going through that production corridor, looking through that glassed-in window at this puppet live-action-based show. But they had a live aerial to interact with the puppets. Her name was Marietta De Prima. She did a wonderful job, but the problem was that it's a children's show budget. Mm-hmm. By the way, if you actually do watch the stuff over YouTube, notice that they have lost the seashell bra. They've got a much more modest outfit for Ariel to wear because, again, this is a kid show. Yeah. But, you know, she can't move. They position her on a rock and the other characters interact with her. And I think the one moment of swimming you get to see in this thing is it's a stick and rod puppet of Ariel that they light in such a way that, you know, it looks like a a live performer swimming. But anyway, two pilot episodes come out. Even Jim Henson himself is kind of disappointed with the way they turned out. (sighs) But the thing is that also this is Jim Henson and he remembers that, you know, when it came to... The Muppet Show. They had to shoot two different pilots. There was the Muppets Valentine Show in '74, and then there was the Muppets Sex and Violence in '75. And it was <laughs> if that's not the name of a studio album, Jim, we will have lost an opportunity. <laughs> By the way, 
Definitely chase that down at some point. It's great fun. But only after they shot those two shows, you know, test shows, it's like, okay, now we know the, understand the mix of elements. And now we know we need to put Kermit front and center. Yeah. And so the thinking was, don't worry about it. These two didn't work. We'll circle back. Let's go off and figure out how we can move Ariel. Let's, you know, make her more like Ariel from the animated film. Yeah, but when, when you're in a costume like that, it's just so hard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so the thinking was we'll regroup in a couple of months and we'll take another run at this pilot. But then, sadly, just a few weeks after this, we lost Jim. Jim passes away on May 16th from bacterial pneumonia. Hmm. And from Disney's point of view, this couldn't have happened at a worse time because if all had gone according to schedule, on May 17th, the day after Jim died, was when Here Come the Muppets was supposed to open at Disney and Jim. And they, they had invited the local press and they had to rapidly call everybody and just like, we'll, we'll open this soon. But, you know, out of respect to the Henson family, we, you know, we're, we're going to hold off. Five days later, they do that amazing celebration of Jim's life at St. John of uh, Divine in New York. But between these two points, between um, us losing Jim on, on May 16th and the celebration of his life on May 21st, on May 18th, Len, mm -hmm. The Little Mermaid comes out on VHS and sells 7.5 million copies in its first three months. Yep. 10 million by the end of the year. It's the top-selling DVD. It's an amazing number of units. Yeah, especially back then. Yeah. And by the end of 1990, this is when the Disney company breaks off its attempt to acquire uh, the Jim Henson Company. And I, there's a number of factors involved there. I mean, one of the biggest ones is that Jim didn't leave a will and that uh, Henson corporate headquarters were in New York state. And so the, the estate taxes were going to be insane. Mm -hmm. So here is this property that Disney has, the little mermaid, huge success on VHS, huge success in theaters, selling tons of merch. And it's like, we need to expand this brand. We need to capitalize it. The little mermaid project, the little mermaids Island dead in the water at this point, mm -hmm. but television animation rates is its hands. And they've had success. We were just talking about Adventures of the Gummy Bears, which they use on NBC in, in 1985. And we have DuckTales released in syndication in 87. And so, you know, it just like, give us the mermaid. We'll do a series, television series. In fact, it was shaped to be a prequel to the movie, you, all of oh, Ariel's adventures before she met Eric. Okay. But that wouldn't actually show up. Even with them turning the key on it in early 1991 after the Henson deal blew up, they wouldn't be able to get it on the air until September of 1992. Meanwhile, at the theme parks, the guest relations folks are logging all these sorts of complaints from folks who are going to the stateside theme parks to the effect of, where's Ariel? Where's Ariel? My daughter wants to meet Ariel. <laughs> Here's a ticket to Paris. <laughs> Disney Paris hasn't opened oh, yet right. in yeah, 1992. Yeah, yeah. And we're still two years away from when that Little Mermaid ride was supposed to open up there. And so stateside, it's just sort of like, the plan's locked in. It's like they get it first, then Disneyland gets right. it, and Disney World gets it at some point in the future. And in the interim, there was the Little Mermaid's Grotto project, but that wasn't going to get up out of the ground till 96. And so finally, the people at the theme park turn to creative entertainment and go, can we get a short-lived show? I mean, something that just needs to run 18 months till we get this other stuff going. And so creative entertainment at this point is already working on Beauty and the Beast live on stage, which now because The Little Mermaid has been such a huge success, right. the new plan is the moment that Beauty and the Beast opens in theaters, 
we have a theme park show. I mean, in fact, that's the thing, Len. If you were at Walt Disney World on November 22nd, 1991, and you went to the Pleasure Island AMC and caught the 11 o'clock show of Beauty and the Beast, you could have walked out of the door after that film was done, got in your car, driven over to Disney M, and be inside that theme park in time to catch the very first presentation of Beauty and the Beast live on stage at 1.30 that day. Wow. I know this is possible because that's what I did <laughs> when I was living in Orlando. <laughs> I remember I went to the AMC the, the day that Toy Story opened, caught the, the very first presentation, and was over in the park in time to see the debut of the Toy Story Parade. Wow. So if you were a Disney freak, you could do that in Orlando. But anyway, they were already going to do a Broadway-style show with Beauty and the Beast. Okay. And we can't now do the exact same thing with The Little Mermaid. It's like literally putting vanilla bean ice cream next to French vanilla. We need to give our guests different experiences. And so, all right, what are we going to do with The Little Mermaid? And it's at this point that somebody on the creative team comes across those two pilot episodes for The Little Mermaid's Island. And it's like, hey, do you see this puppet thing? And they don't use the puppets that the Henson folks created, which, by the way, another reason to check out the Little Mermaid's Island stuff over on YouTube, because they are ridiculously unmodeled. The Henson people did an amazing job. But no, Disney hired an entirely different outfit to create all of the puppets for Voyage of the Little Mermaid. And this is also one of those, when you talk with the veterans of Disneyland Entertainment, and they're like, when you mention Beauty and the Beast live on stage and the voyage of the Little Mermaid, do you ever hear the story about you could tell how stressed people are by how high up into their hairline they touch? You can, if they touch their elbow, it's somewhat stressed. They touch their forehead, they're more stressed. If they bury their hands in their hairline, they're incredibly stressed. You talk with any Disney Entertainment veteran and you mention this and they grab their neck. <laughs> Inside of one six and a half week long period, they launched the Beauty and the Beast live on stage show. Again, 25 minute long equivalent of a Broadway show. That's what led to Beauty and the Beast on Broadway in 94. They did such a good job with this stage show. And then right behind that, they go and, and do Voyage of Little Mermaid, which is blacklight. It's lasers. lasers it's water yeah. effect. And in combination with film clips and film elements, and again, you just you mentioned Voyage of the Little Mermaid, and they just twitch. <laughs> but they get it open for January 7th, 1992, and again, only supposed to run 18 months, but was so hugely popular. And that tells you, again, about, you know, that character that, you know, just ran for years and years and years yeah. and years. There were two aspects of the Little Mermaid's Island project. One was that there was going to be this show for the Disney Channel, mm -hmm. but there was also going to be, you know, when folks were at Disney MGM and walking through the production corridor, they'd be able to look down and see this live action puppet-based show being produced. We jump ahead now to uh, fall of 1994, and we finally get our live-action puppet-based show. But it's not based on The Little Mermaid. It's based on Beauty and the Beast. It's called Sing Me a Story with Belle. They have a, a wonderful young woman with Lindsay McLeod. Okay. Plays Belle. And Jim Cummings, voice of Winnie the Pooh, voices all sorts of characters on this show. And they only shot one season, 26 episodes, ran on the Disney Channel for a couple of years. The supporting cast of the show features people like Tim Godwin and Christian Trulson, who were members of the opening cast for the Adventurers Club. Oh, that's nice. 
So you know you you get to see, hey, that's Graves, you know, or, or you know, or that's Emil Bleehall, you know. Oh, hey, you know, get to see these guys again. But oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, but again, that's so that's the story of the Little Mer- the Voyage of the Little Mermaid, which again started off life as an aborted television show. And only really exists because somebody was like, wait a minute, somebody got me a VHS of this thing they almost did. Could we maybe do that? <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, the show lasted forever. Even, uh, I mean, it, it, was, it was well past its prime. But you got to admit, a run that long for a show that took six and a half weeks to put together, it's, that, that mm-hmm. exceeds anyone's expectations, right? And remember, you know, we still have that Little Mermaid with Melissa McCarthy playing Ursula. Right now, if you Google Little Mermaid Pinewood Studios, somebody has flown over the studio and you can actually see, for example, Prince Eric's ship, uh, you know, just sitting in the back lot, you know, waiting for them to shoot those scenes. So they're, they're all ready to go when it's finally safe to start shooting again. Oh, that's fantastic. And you, you got to wonder if, uh, if Disney is waiting around for something like that to either reuse the theater or, uh, or bring something back. That's it, exactly. That the belief is that if th- this film hits big, we'll just get to see the 2022 you know, version. And, you know, it, again, it'll be fascinating to talk with the entertainment team about how long that one took to, to get together and how much, how, how high up in their forehead they touch when they tell those <laughs> stories. So. <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, yeah, if you're at, at that point, that'll be the thing, and then they retire and then go to a nice home where go. they never have to hear about Ariel or Mermaid again. <laughs> no, 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 no. He doesn't. It's not that he's allergic to shrimp. You just can't talk, talk about seafood near him. Oh, funny. Okay. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including never before heard ideas that Disney came up with for Spaceship Earth back in the 1970s. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TerrainPlants.com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be serving up his world-famous hickory-smoked pulled pork sandwiches topped with vinegar slaw and barbecue sauce, plus Grandma Adams' secret hush puppies on Friday, March 26th at 6 p.m. at the Beer, Bourbon, and Barbecue Festival at the Cocoa Beach Amphitheater at Regency Park in beautiful downtown Cary, North Carolina. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.